have a handout, but I got busy doing everything and forgot to print it out. So we'll have to struggle along with that one, I guess, this morning. So. But looking this morning, we're going to be going over the coming of the Christ. This is really uh, in the book a two-part session, so we're looking at the first session this morning. Uh, various references that we'll be looking at um, in Isaiah, Matthew, John, and then Galatians. So uh, starting this, the coming of the Christ. We often talk about Christ. We, in our culture, in our society, then of course we always go by first name, last name, right? And we all refer to Christ generally by Jesus Christ, like that's how we commonly do things. But we also need to recognize the fact that when we're talking about Christ, the term Christ is not and was not a name. Christ was an identifier. It meant anointed one or it meant Messiah. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, what we're really saying is Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. That's really what this means. And I guess a lot of times we, we kind of lose concentration that don't think about that. But he was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. He was the one that was prophesied that would come. So when we look into that, in the coming of Christ, the first question, obviously, we're going to have is, why did Christ come? We stop thinking about the Godhead. We, th we think about eternal beings, divine beings. We really have no first-hand knowledge of what heaven is like. We don't know what Christ left in order to come down to us. We're told that it's significant, and we believe it was. But we really don't have any first-hand knowledge of that, so it's hard for us to understand and comprehend that. But knowing what the scriptures tell us, then why would Christ leave such a place to come here? We look into 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then we look again at Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. It tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Christ came. He left heaven. He came to earth for us. He could have done anything he wanted to do. God has all power, all authority. But yet he left the home that he had to come here specifically for us. He left the glories of heaven to come to earth as a servant. We look at see Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. By doing so, he faithfully obeyed the will of his Father, we're told in Hebrews 10, in verse 9. This made him subject to the temptations and struggles of man. When Christ came to the earth, then it said he came as a man, came in flesh. And part of that was living life as a man. When we read the scriptures, we see things and we see workings of Christ. 
we see the things that he did, the miracles that he performed. But when we look at those miracles, those miracles were for a couple of different reasons. One was to confirm that he was the Word, the living Word of God. And two, we're told in the Bible that he did miracles because he had compassion. So he saw others who were suffering, and he did miracles to help them. What we don't see in the Bible is Jesus performing miracles to help himself. Right? He had the power to do that, but he did not do that. The miracles were for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And we see that in the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore he had been made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was made a man just like us so he could understand what we live, what we go through. We talked last week about the fact of God being before, uh, Christ being before the throne of God and in acting on our behalf. And he can do that because he understands what we go through. He understands the struggles and the temptations from day to day that people have. We read in the scriptures that at that time and at this time, those that obey God or try to are going to be in the minority, right? We understand that the majority of the people in the world are not going to be obedient to the faith. The Bible tells us that. They give in to temptations. They give in to those struggles that we talk about. So Christ went through those, overcame those, so he could understand those. And now he stands before the throne of God on our behalf when we go through those struggles. He was also God in the flesh. When we look at John 1 and, and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we see in, in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible talks about Christ being the Word. So when Christ came, we didn't have the internet that we could type things up and send it out, right? We didn't have all these huge libraries in every city like we do today. We didn't have newspapers, magazines. When it talks about Christ being the Word, He was literally the Word. The words that came from his mouth were from the Father. It was the actual word of God in relation to man and the plan of redemption. So it talks about him being the word. It's very specific there. We go a little further. We look at the birth of Christ. Jesus was born as a fulfillment of prophecy. Since Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the coming of Christ, we can see that this was not an accident. We look at Isaiah 7 and 14 and Matthew 1 and 23. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years before the birth of Christ, all this was prophesied 
down to the name. When Jesus was born, he was born at the proper time. In Galatians 4 and 4 through 5, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to the Son. So he came at the time that was set. The fullness of time refers to the moment at which conditions are favorable for Jesus' ministry to be accomplished. God having the power and authority, God could have sent Jesus at any time. But he did not. The time had to be right. We look a little further into this. At the time Christ came, the Roman Empire extended over most of the civilized world at the time. And far-reaching travel and commerce was possible. It had not been possible before that time. We heard the other day about the roads of Rome. All roads lead to Rome. The roads that the Roman Empire built across the known world at the time stretched as far as England from Rome itself. When you sailed across the sea and you left Europe proper and went to England, when you got there, you found roads that the Roman Empire had built. Make travel easy. Made the dealing of commerce trade easy. Some of the roads that the Roman Empire built are still in use today. It's interesting, I looked back into this uh, about a year ago or something for a different lesson. The method that the Roman Empire used to build their highways is the exact same method we use today to build our highways. That's how good their technology was for their time. They laid down the coarse bed of gravel. They laid down the packed gravel. Then they put what was their pavement on top of that. They had curbs on the side of the road so pedestrians could walk and not get wet when it was raining. A lot of things that we see today are things that we adapted from them. Those great roads made traveling easy across the empire. The people were linked in the, la in the language of the Greeks. It was the first time since the Tower of Babel that a language was so common across the world. It wasn't the only language, it wasn't the only one used, but it was widespread and it could be understood. And then, last but not least, the world was in a moral abyss and spiritual hunger was abundant. As in the days of Noah, then again here in the days of the Roman Empire, morality of the world had fallen. And people were tired of it. People were looking for something different, something better. People were looking for God. So when Christ came, all these things added together to help his ministry. It was observed by David Lipscomb and, and oh, sorry, next one. Jesus was born in the proper nature. Scripture tells us that he was born a woman, sharing our human nature. He was born under the law so that he could fulfill the law. Christ talked about his purpose coming and was not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But in order to fulfill the law, Christ had to live under the law. So he could not have come prior to the law and still been able to fulfill it. So he had to be born under that Mosaic law. His birth and his mission served to identify Jesus Christ as the Son of God. 
Then we get into Christ as a servant and his suffering that he endured. Although anointed Jesus did not come to earth to live and reign as king, he said he came to serve. We see that in Matthew 20 and 28. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. His suffering was prophesied by Isaiah. The prophet spoke of the Lord's servant that would willingly endure suffering, which he did not deserve. When we look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We read about this, and we come together every week, and we think about Christ. We think about the crucifixion that Christ went through, the, the death on the cross, and the price that it paid for us. And that is the major theme of the New Testament, the redemption of mankind and how it happened. But a lot of times we skip over the fact of the suffering of Christ. We often remember that death, but do we remember the suffering that he endured? Jesus suffered severely throughout his trials, his torture, and crucifixion. We see in Isaiah 52 and 14 that his suffering would be physical. There were many who appalled him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man in his form marred beyond human likeness. This is talking about the punishment and the suffering that Christ went through. So he was disfigured beyond that of any man. His suffering was emotional. All the disciples deserted and fled, Matthew 26 and 56. His suffering was spiritual, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. Jesus had the weight of the sins of the entire world on him, 1 John 2 and 2. It was sin that caused Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27 and 46. Jesus' brutal physical suffering, brutal physical suffering was augmented by the, his having to bear the guilt of our sins and to pay for our penalty. Romans 5 and 8. We look at Isaiah, sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. 52 and 13 through 15, it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred by more than any man, his form more than any sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Christ's suffering on the cross showed the devastating nature of sin. The wrath of God, the cruelty of humanity, and the hatred of Satan. At Calvary, mankind was allowed to do his worst to the Son of Man as he became the Redeemer for us. Even though we have turned everyone to his own way, God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. The Son of God came to earth to suffer and to die that we might have the opportunity to live eternally. He suffered and died in order to secure salvation for all who would believe. On the night of his arrest, as Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, he committed all to this task. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Luke 22 and 42. So we understand that Christ knew of the suffering that he was going to endure. We read about him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and the intense prayer that he had. The Bible talks about the sweat as blood, the emotional stress, and the strain that he had. But even though he knew what was going to come, then his prayer ended in, Thy will be done. As we read on, we see that the suffering was not taken from Christ. That he drank that cup for us because there was no other way for us to be saved. In uh, chapter 2 of the first epistle, Peter discusses Jesus' suffering. And he also discusses us in that same chapter. Peter says we are called for a purpose. 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21, For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Peter states that we've been called for a purpose, this purpose. We look back at verse 20 we just read, to suffer for what is right. And that's what we've been called to do because you've been called to be a Christian. You've been called to be at odds with the world. We just mentioned the fact that majority of the world is not going to yield to God and obey the Father. That's unfortunate, but that is true. Therefore, being a Christian you are going to be at odds with the majority of the world. They're not going to share your views. They're not going to share your beliefs. And oftentimes you're going to have to stand up for those. You're going to suffer ridicule. You're going to suffer possibly persecution. That is part of being a Christian. We begin to see this today in the workforce. With the acceptance of some of these immoral acts that are in, going on in society, then employers begin to push those things down on the employees. They want you to participate in the activities that celebrate, I guess is the way to work, some of these sins. We talked about last week that we cannot do that. We cannot take part in that. Romans tells us in chapter 1 that these things are going to happen. And it talks about the fact that those who engage in those are going to be lost spiritually. But in the last verse of that chapter, it also tells us, as we discussed before, if we give our approval to those things, we are just as guilty of that sin as the one who commits that sin. We discussed the fact as Christians it is our job to try to pull people away from hell. To save those souls. But if we encourage and we approve those things which are wrong and sinful, we're actually encouraging those people to lose their soul. And as Christians we should never encourage someone to lose their soul. So if you show your Christianity, there may be hostile reactions. You will suffer. You've been called to that as a Christian. Then he says also in this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 
Christ suffered greatly, far more than we will ever suffer, but yet remain faithful. And that's the example that we have and what we should follow. When we look at Hebrews, in chapter 2 and verse 10, it talks about Jesus and why he suffered. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So when we break this verse down and look at it, it talks about that for whom and by whom all things exist. We read of the creation in Genesis, and it's spoken of again in John chapter 1. And it talks about the fact that through Christ, nothing was made, right, except through him. So Christ was in the creation process. He created the earth. He created all things on the earth. He created the universe as we know it. He was part of that creation process. All things exist by him. And it says, he made their salvation perfect through suffering. Through his suffering, he made our salvation perfect, complete. Bringing many sons to glory. So the purpose then of, of Christ's suffering. As an example for us to follow, Jesus showed that a person can follow the will of God. He did that. A person can serve God. Christ did that. A person can be beloved of God, and Christ was. A person can be perfectly righteous. Christ was. A person can be totally obedient to God in everything. Christ was. A person can believe God perfectly, and yet he suffered. The suffering that he had was unjust. Christ, in his death, gave us the standard of how to respond to unjust persecution. The word example... Like I said, I don't speak these languages, but in the original language is hupogramos, which literally means writing under. When we think of example, it, the interpretation is writing under. It was writing put under a piece of paper to trace letters on. Christ is our pattern. He's the standard. He's the example by which we're to trace our life. It was used by a child in basic class learning to write the alphabet. What happened is they would have a piece of paper that they would write on and they'd have a separate piece of paper that had the alphabet. They would take that and put it under their paper and then they would trace the letters. Christ then was our example. He's our model for our life. Just as that child would trace the letters across that, that's how we are supposed to trace the life of Christ. It's the pattern for us. And Peter wants us to look closely at how Christ responded to his suffering. Peter goes back and takes us through the eyes of his own experience and through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah from the 53rd chapter. The first thing he draws on in Isaiah is 53 and verse 9 to describe Christ's reaction to the unjust treatment. And according to verse 22... 
In all of it, he committed no sin, nor is any deceit. And when we read the word deceit, it means to trickery or treachery. There was no deceit found in his mouth. It describes Christ's general reaction to his unjust treatment. He committed no sin. And then also, it says there he committed no lawlessness. When we look at the word lawlessness, it means no sin by either omission or commission in either thought, deed, or action. Thought, speech, or action, sorry. So, no sin of omission, no sin of commission in thought, in speech, or in his actions. Jesus committed no sin even under the most difficult circumstances when he was being unjustly treated. And then Peter says, and while being reviled, and the word reviled here means abusive or insulting language. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to he who judges righteously. When we read about Christ's trial, we read about how he was treated, the things that, was done, things that were done, done to him, the things that were said to him. Some of the things by the high priest of Israel. Some of the things by the Pharisees who were supposedly the most strict to the Mosaic law in their time. But yet they used abusive and insulting language against someone who they had no evidence of any crime. Does this sound like Examples of the religious world that the people should have followed at the time. Everything they did in Christ's trial was illegal under the Mosaic law. But yet they were spiritual leaders, leaders of Israel at the time. So it begins to show a lot about the trial that Christ had. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb is led to the slaughter. Innocent, unjust, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. While he was suffering, he spoke no threats. But even in such suffering and death, there can be beauty. Christ's death was not beautiful because he had to suffer, but it's beautiful because he chose to suffer for us. And then we look at the signs and miracles that Christ performed. John chapter 2. Many will still ask, why should we submit to Jesus? Why yield to him and not to some other? Jesus Christ answers this in the book of John. And John 14 verse 11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. The miraculous, miraculous works of Jesus were designed to make his glory known to mankind. Even to the Pharisees, even his worst enemies admitted, this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Pharisees knew that Christ was sent from the Father. It's evidence in this statement. They understood that the miracles that Christ performed could not be done except by someone who was sent by the Father. But yet they denied him and crucified him. When you think of their position as religious leaders, it doesn't make sense. We've discussed before many times, 
as the religious leaders of the nation, as the members of the Sanhedrin, as a high priest, their one job was to find the Messiah. That was what they were supposed to be looking for, the coming of the Messiah. But yet when the Messiah came, they denied him. The miracles of Christ recorded in the gospel accounts prove that Jesus had been given power in heaven and on earth. It is documented for us that he had power over the human body. He could heal sickness and disease with a touch of his hand. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. He had power over the spiritual world by forgiving sins. Luke 5, 20 through 24. And by casting out demons. Luke 6 and 18. To control the physical world by calming the storms and walking on water. Matthew 14, 25 through 33. Power over death was shown through his glorious resurrection three days after his crucifixion. John 20, 24 through 29. Many of his works are listed in the scriptures, but many more were also performed. John 20, 30 through 31 tells us, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then Christ came and he proved himself through the miracles he performed. 1 John 5 and verse 20 says, and we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know who he is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. So we talk about this is the coming of Christ. This is the first section of this study. We talked about Christ and his coming to earth, why he came to earth, the suffering that he endured and why it had to be done the miracles that he performed in proving that he was the Son of God, the willingness of Jesus to suffer and to die in our place stands as a reminder of the wonderful love of God for humanity. Instead of coming to be served, Christ came to serve. The miracles of Jesus played an important role in establishing his identity. The study of his life and works helped to enhance our faith in him. So we have a couple of minutes left. Do you have any comments or any questions? Yes, uh, the word, word, the Jesus word in the Greek is the logos. Mm-hmm. The life of everything in the word. Right. Logos, the life of everything. No. The light and life. The light and life. Right. Anyone else? Okay, well then we'll wrap up our study for this morning. And I'll give you about a minute or so back then. Thank you very much for your attendance and your help in the lesson. I appreciate it very much.